0: Welcome to the Hillside Community Church Podcast. Wherever you're at in your faith, we hope this episode encourages you. If you enjoy the listen, let your friends know, and we'll catch you next time. So we're in this series uh, called Crystal, where we're trying to keep our, uh, we want our faith to be as strong as possible, we want our vision of God and what He wants us to do. As clear as possible. Last couple weeks we've looked directly or straight at Jesus uh, in this hymn in Colossians. And through him uh, we get a perspective on all reality, from who I am uh, to what is real. And we're hoping that you have the kind of vision of him, you think about it this way, the kind of vision of him that, uh, that's not altered by disaster when it happens. That's not altered by social disorder. Um, war. Religions. Secular views. Parody or sarcasm all rampant through our system, through our culture. Personal pain. Is your, clear, is, is your vision of Jesus clear, even in personal pain? I mean, even in uh, sort of the atheistic rejection of, of, of God through you know, our intellectual, our academic institutions, scientific community... Is your faith strong enough to withhold in those? That's what we're trying to do. Uh, Almost all of my favorite authors quote uh, sociologist Peter Berger. And so anytime I get a chance to read something by him, you know, I'll read it because all my favorite guys quote him. And uh, he writes, as you're looking at So you know, sort of the social landscape and culture. Uh, He says the only argument, what what has the only thing to cut through all of those things that confronts our perception of society, is the figure of Jesus Christ. He says it is this figure of the crucified one which continues to haunt both the oppressors and the oppressed. Casting its shadow over the religious celebrations and at the same time intruding its disturbing light into the corners where one escapes the sacred drums. We now find that it is not enough to perceive society and religion, but we are compelled to relate this perception to a demand. Think about this. Take all of the things that I just listed and mentioned to you and, re- and relate a perception of those to a demand that transcends both society and religion, and the demand is to follow this figure of the crucified one. This demand calls us to an exodus, not only out of the Egypt of social mythology, but also out of the Zion of religious security. The exodus takes us out of the holy city, out past the scene of the cross and the resurrection, and beyond into the desert, into which God is waiting. And then in this desert, all horizons are open. It's from there until you come out of it, come to the cross, see the resurrection, into the desert where God is, that all the rest of it opens up and becomes clear. I love the phrase all horizons are open. Now, that means that what Christ has done for us changes all of all our perspective, on all reality. Now, we have been saying, sort of in this series each week, that, of course, all those things society and, and, and culture and all those, those things that constantly pound on our faith, have a, have, a, have a way of making our faith look fuzzy, but the truth of the matter is, some of us just don't want to see it. It might not becoming external. If your faith is fuzzy, it may not be from external. It may be because you don't want to see. It may be that, that you don't want to follow. It may be from sort of a decided blindness. I don't want to look at it. I don't want to see it. Um, you know the nursery rhyme Pussycat, pussycat, where have you been? Well, I've been to London to see the great queen. Pussycat, pussycat, what saw you there? I saw a wee mouse under her chair. And, of course, the idea is, you I mean, you went there. You, you went there to see the queen. You got, you got an audience with the queen. And all, you could, all your feline fickleness could, could do was... Keep your eyes on the mouse under her chair. You missed it. And that's the way it is sometimes with faith and with spiritual things. Sometimes you don't want to see, and that could be you if your faith is fuzzy. Well, as we continue to look at this hymn, because we're not finished with it yet, I've saved a piece of it. Uh, this hymn, remember the first part of it has to do with creation and the second part of it has to do with redemption and reconciliation. Uh, and I told you that 17 and 18 are transition from this cosmos to this sort of redemptive picture in reality where uh, there's this Christ who created everything and then all of a sudden we find him within the creation dying on a cross, rising from the dead And, and, and rising to supremacy again, to a preeminence. And this transition here Verse 17, he is before all things and he holds all things together. That goes back up to here. And then verse 18 says this, he is also head of the body, the church. Now right smack in the middle of this comes another thing. And so what you have really pitted against each other is you have creation and then you have the church. So whatever kind of supremacy he had, creation is what he was over. So you say, well, in the redemptive world, in redemptive reality, what's he over there? And it's the church. Now, it's very likely. It's very likely. In fact, I read two books this week on the church. One of them was by an elder... Um, in, a, in a church it was a very excellent book uh, and then I wrote another one uh, who's a pastor uh, that was a little more historical a little bit more theological uh, finished that one Saturday morning and both of them were so good to read. They're just so healthy for my soul. And by the time I was done, I said, "You know, the likelihood is, the likelihood is, when you're looking at a hymn, you might under, you might underestimate Christ a little bit until you look at this hymn. And I guarantee you underestimate the church. <laughs> we likely underestimate what this is saying about the church. And and without without even starting yet you have to imagine that this this god who created everything is above everything and nothing exists without him and now all of a sudden he's over the church you got to figure you can't have a high christology and not have a high ecclesiology high christology is a high view of christ high ecclesiology is a high view of the church you gotta have them together they go together But I'll bet sometimes you relate to the church, which is often, you know, it's the, one of the images is the bride. And guys, I'll just go ahead and, I don't know, we'll see if this works. But you got a buddy who gets married, and you don't like her. And now you don't spend so much time with her, with him, and you don't know if you, she's a tool. And, you know, it's just not as fun anymore. And if you got to be together, it's okay. You can handle it. You know, you can suck it up for a little while. And then you just, you know, but pretty soon, you know, you're just not together as much. We all have that. It works both ways in real marriage, but in this setting. You can, you can sort of say, you know, I really love Jesus. He's my buddy, but his bride is the tool. And a lot of people look at the church that way. I can handle Jesus. But (laughs) this woman is a little nuts. That's how people look at it. And so you could give or take it. The truth is, you could give or take it. So I want to ask you a question. I want to ask a question, and I want to spend two weeks trying to answer it. Do we really need it? Do we really need it? How significant is it? What, what significance does it have to my spiritual life? Uh, and is it possible for me to operate without it? Well, we're going to look at some of the, uh, sort of the, we're going to lay out the structure of this reality a little bit, and then next week, do something, probably as many times as I've talked about the church. I've probably never actually in one talk, said, here's what you cannot have without it. And next week, I will give you those. This week, I just want you to see her for a minute in sort of its theological structure. I want you to notice this huge move. This is a huge move. In fact, what, what's really strange what, what, when, when scholars look at this text is... Uh, Because the real real comparison is here. Who is and who is. This is where the verses start. So it ends, 17 ends this section about creation, but then rather than go into the next who is statement, it, it squeezes this into the middle and then doesn't say anything else about it. And so everyone's going, well, this is a hymn. Somebody wrote it. But why in the world would somebody write that? comment right there before it goes into the next sort of parallel image why does he do that well it's definitely important and it's definitely emphatic whatever he's doing there because conceptually paul wants the reader to see this move because you can't see uh jesus clearly and not change your vision of the church Whatever's going on here, you cannot look at Jesus one way and the church another. So one commentator writes, if Christ is head of the church, it means the destinies of creation and the church are bound together. And that God's purposes for all creation, I love this phrase, gestate in the churches." congregational life. So we said he is preeminent. Look at this section here. This is sort of the first half of creation. He is firstborn. He is over all creation. Now he is head of the church. You say, how did he get from here to here? Well, the second part of this section here on redemption tells us how he dies and rises again now Ephesians gives us a much more graphic image of the move God makes because here's the move at one level okay he was head over creation he was supreme over creation and now all of a sudden it shifted to he is head over the church well how did he get over there and how did that come into play well that's the gospel And I want you to see that the church is tied to the gospel, and you cannot untether them. They cannot be untethered. And so he goes from creation, remember, down. The gospel brings him down to earth where he dies on a cross, then he rises from the dead, and he becomes preeminent again. You say, Well, where is he now? He is head over the church. So whatever, whatever was happening here, they're related. Because now he's head of the church. And Ephesians gives us this picture. Look, he's talking about a power in Ephesians 1, 19, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and then seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. That's on a throne. You say he seated him at the, at, yes, he's high up again, came down to the cross, He's far above all rule, authority, power, dominion, every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. Christ is that supreme. And he put all things in subjection under his feet, and he gave him as head over all things to the church. It always reminds me when I'm thinking about this is you know, you win the Super Bowl and you go, what are you gonna do now? Okay, Jesus, you rose from the dead. What are you going to do now? You're going to be head of the church. That's what you're going to be. Head over the church. Watch this. It's not finished. Look at the imagery. Which is his body. The fullness, Paul's been using that term, in the, of him who fills all in all. In other words, we've been saying Christ is the fullness of God in Colossians 1. He embodies everything God is. Well, where do you think that fullness is now? Where do you think you see it now? You see it in this body. If He's the head of the body, that's where you see it. In fact, speaking of where you see it, look at Ephesians 3. Paul says this, he's preaching. To me, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given. What grace? To preach. What are you preaching? I'm preaching to the Gentiles, the riches of Christ, to bring to light the administration of the mystery. That's the church. Which for all ages has been hidden, by the way, Until Christ comes, until Acts shows up, there's no, until Jesus says to Peter, I'm going to give you, I'm going to build my church on this. That's the first human conversation about the church that ever happened. So nobody knew about it until then, which has been hidden, but now God had, uh, in God who created all things, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known. How are we going to make, God, how are you going to make known your wisdom? I'm going to do it through the church. Because I want the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places everywhere to see what I'm doing. Well, where are we going to see that at? Right here. I sent my son for you to see it, and my son is now head of the church for you to see it. The church figures prominently in everything that God is doing in the world. When we talked about this in redemption, To reconcile all things. That means the church is not only a picture of what God's doing in the world. It's the means. You say, how is God going to reconcile all things to himself? He's going to do it through the church. The church becomes the means. There's a great, I I, I like this image I read by uh, um, Harvey Kahn. He's a late professor um, of... The urban church planting at Westminster Theological Seminary used the analogy of the church as a model home. Jesus, the kingdom developer, has begun building a new, house, new housing on a tract of earth's land purchased with his blood. And he has erected a model home as an exhibition of what will eventually fill the whole world. That's what the church is. So here's what he's saying. Remember in our picture, creation fell. Christ had to come here. Now, God, through the church, has given us a picture of what he's redeemed and changed and made different. And so the world gets to walk into and with the church to see what God has been doing. God, what are you up to? What are you building? Where are you taking this fallen mess? You should, be able to, you should be able to see it in the church. You should be able to see it in the church. So Christ establishes his lordship at the church, right over the church. And I want to just stop you here for a second, because I've taught this passage many times. And, um, and I just want to say, uh, this is not a heavenly abstraction. This has very, very serious implications for how you and I expect to have a spiritual existence here what that looks like, how we identify ourselves, and what we're supposed to be doing while we're here is all caught up in this right here. It's incredible what it is. Because the church is the headquarters for God's redemptive plan in the world, and we are a significant part of it, and you can't lose sight of that. We can't lose sight of that. It has, it's a a universal, it's a universe-sized reality that we have to, that has nitty-gritty real impact and application for how you and I expect to do the spiritual life while we're here. Now, so what I want to do, very, very simply, is say a couple of things to you about what this picture shows us the next week. I'll do all the work of of applying uh, and stating it. Let me see how I state it. I wrote down this morning. I couldn't find the way I wanted to say this. This is what I wanted to say. Why the church is critical to who you are and what Christ is doing in the world. You need to know that. Why you cannot be without the church. And what are the things that you ought to have in church, in the church that you belong to, That you cannot do without. And I want to make sure that that is uh, really plain to you. But in the meantime, what we see is Christ is now, two things this text has told us. Christ is now preeminent, he is preeminent, that means he's high above everything. He sits on a throne high above everything, and now we learn that this high preeminence, which is the highest possible place you can be, now puts him as head over the church. So this is the image we have. So we got sort of two images in Colossians about Jesus' relationship to the church. One is he is the ruler Okay. The second is, he is the head. Now what do these two images suggest to anyone related to him? If you're related to him, what do these two images suggest about me and my life? If everything in my life is built on him, and the church is built on the gospel, because you couldn't have had it until Jesus died and rose again. The gospel is the center. So what is going on here? Well, let's just talk out loud about this for a second. In the first image, we are his subjects. He's a ruler. He rules us. We do what he says. That's the first image. The second image is headship, where he's the head of the body. That makes us a body. This is more... This one here is more imperial. This one here is organic. I'm connected to him the way my body parts, my head is connected to my body. And that's completely different than his relationship to creation. Whatever his relationship was to creation when he was preeminent, it's completely different than the one he has now over the church. It's it's organic. So the church is the locale of his lordship. It's and he is the head of the body. That makes me the body. That makes you the body. That means I cannot be under his rule. And I cannot be connected to him relationally. Dependent on him organically without being connected to the church. Cannot do it. You end up lawless. out from under his rule. Don't miss this because it's really true. You're out from under his rule, and you're disconnected from the body. Listen, your body, you can cut off any part of your body you want, not your head. You lose that. We don't walk around. You know how when you get really frantic and your life is really going down to tubes, you say, I think I'm losing my head? No one says, I think I'm losing my finger today. Okay, because that wouldn't mean that much. It would be a bad day it's a bad day. Okay, let's go ahead and be honest. It's a bad day to lose your finger. But it's the end when you lose your head. So, (laughs) now you say, what do you mean by heavenly abstraction? Because we look at this and we go, yeah, I see this church right here. But I mean, there's lots of churches are we talking about the invisible church, sort of the overall church? And I, and I just want to say something to you about the universal church, invisible church. They're useless without a local church. You can't see it. If the church was supposed to be a place where you could see something, you can't see anything in the invisible church. It's invisible. Whatever Christ was doing in his flesh in creating the church, it was to make it so you could see it so that it could be tangible, so it could be fleshed out. That's the point of the image of the body. Let's see it move, let's see it work, let's see it act. That's why every local church falls into this picture. Or at least the ones that Christ is the head of. Okay, so, and I just wanna say this, this is really important. Paul never talks about the universal church that we're all a part of at some level without talking about the local one because it wouldn't make any sense to anybody. The local part is what gives life and visibility to the universal part. So if you were going to define the church, you would define it as a gathering. Ecclesia means called out. That's what the Greek words mean, ek and kleo, which means to call. But that's not really what the term means. The term is when you translate that word, when you're writing a sentence, you don't say you're the called out ones. You say you're the assembled ones. You're the ones who get together. A church is a gathering of people under godly leadership. That preaches and proclaims the gospel, the death, burial, resurrection of Christ, and the fact that he rules, using the ordinances to picture that. That's the sacraments, baptism, and communion. And and living out the relational reality that Christ has created among us. That's the church. So whenever you think of the church, you've got to think of them as, well, where are the people of God? At the church. They're in the church. Because you're going to see. they ought to gather once a week so everybody knows where they're at. Because, you know, Christians, they're sneaky. And we've got to come out of hiding at least once a week, right, together. And you can drive around today and you can go, well, there they all are. I can see them all right now. Here are the people of God. You ought to be able to say that. So that's what this is. Now, to prove that, let me take you to a couple of verses right here in Colossians. Look what Paul says at the end of the book of Colossians. Four Remember, Colossae's is a city. He's writing to a church in it. And I want you to see this, what he says. Greet the brethren who are in Laodicea and also Nympha and the church that is in her house. There's a church in this lady's house. Her house is the church. Well, what do you think that means? There's a there's this cross on it? There's brethren in it. They have, a, they have assembled. They have gathered together, and they are in her house. That is his lordship. Listen, this is, his lordship is not just established in the cosmos, Could be right over Nympha's house. The church at her house. That's where he's Lord. Now you, you think through uh, the book of Acts. And once the church starts, and you know how, remember how the book starts in Acts, how the church starts. Peter preaches a great sermon. And then at the end of it, he says, This, this man you crucified has become Savior and Lord. And once you establish him as Savior and Lord, guess what happens? Church starts. And all of Acts is how the church gets cranking. And you don't even begin to talk. Pretty soon, you don't even talk about individual Christians. You're talking about the church. And I just jotted down just in Acts. I just started in chapter 8 where Saul, listen to this. Saul began to destroy the church. That means he was persecuting individual Christians. But we didn't name them. He was destroying the church when he did that. Uh. News of this in Acts 4 reached the church. Barnabas and Saul met with the church. Herod arrested some men who belonged to the church. The church was earnestly praying. They gathered the church together. The church sent them out on their way. They were welcomed by the church. The church is everything in Acts. It's everything. You begin, you begin to identify yourself with it. Now, I'm just going to say this to you, too, very practically, because uh, I'm just about finished with this first setup. You cannot, you cannot read the New Testament it's a le- without, without thinking of the church. It's a letter to the church or someone in it. I want you to think about that. No word from God in your Bible, and your New Testament, to anyone outside the church. Notice what he says here. Verse 16, right after that verse, Paul says, And when this letter is read, I want it read among you, it's also to be read in the church. Not just Colossae, but Laodicea. And you, for your part, read my letter that is coming from Laodicea. In other words, I want Colossi to read it, Laodicea, I want all the churches to read it. The church would gather together and they'd read it out loud. They proclaimed God's word together when they got together. That's what distinguishes them. There's no letter written in the New Testament for you who don't like the church. He didn't say, let's get this letter to Colossae, let's get this letter to Laodicea, let's make sure... uh, Uh, All the churches read it and then send this one to Pete. He doesn't like the church. He's over there at his house. He gets a special letter from me. No, I mean, I got to read it to the church because I'm part of the church. I can't even understand it unless I'm a part of the community. So you can't escape it. You can't read the New Testament. You can't know Christ. Christ. And not be connected to and part of the church. They both go together. If he's the head of the church and I'm connected to him, I'm part of the church. And everything's said. So the the New Testament never even thinks, never even thinks. I'm going to say something to you. It never even thinks of a person, contemplates a person who's not a part of the local church. And I'm going to tell you one other one it never does. It never contemplates one that isn't baptized. You say, well, I prefer to be dry. You don't get to prefer that. You don't get to prefer it. You don't get to say, I don't have to be there for communion. Those are the ordinances of the church. You better believe we're supposed to be taking those. They're significant. Christians are all wet. And that's just how it is. If he rules... And we're a part of a community, and those are the two pictures of being in the community. That's, that's sort of how, uh, I'm going to tell you, I was just thinking about this this week. You can't read the New Testament with all that God is asking any of us to do and imagine that you could do it without being in a church. Much of what the New Testament tells you to do and be has to do with, with the community that you're a part of. It's, it's phenomenal. So let me just wrap this up by looking at our image again of the ruler and the head here. So here's essentially what these two images mean. And next week I'll show you how they apply to you and to the local church that you ought to be a part of and what that local commitment to that community ought to be. Okay? And here's what he says. Uh, Number one is the ruler. So what does that suggest? Number one, you don't have the authority to conduct your life on your own. That's the first thing. If he's the ruler, you don't have the authority to conduct your life on your own. You don't get to say, I just want God. I don't want to. You know, I want to be that missing body part. That's what I want to be. You don't, you don't get to do that. You don't get to dictate. You're, no, I'll do it next week. The second thing. You ever say to someone, you ever been in a situation where some, somebody came up to you and said, well, so-and-so said we ought to do this, and then you said back to them this phrase here. They don't have the authority to say that. Have you ever had to do that? I bet you've done it to your kids because your kids are telling each other what to do and they're doing stuff they shouldn't be doing. And you're like, you don't get to tell him that. Or at work. How many times has this happened at work? Somebody told you to do something, and you're like, well, I did. he didn't. He doesn't have the authority to tell. Oh, no. And things get screwed up when people take authority that they're not supposed to take. And then there's the headship. You don't have the ability to survive on your own. You can't disconnect from your, the source, from the brain that's telling your hands what to do and your feet what to do and where to go, you don't get to separate those. So what I'm saying is the church, as cr- with Christ as its head, is, is what's giving shape to your Christian life. All uh, right, let me close with this. I'll be done. Here's what Paul says in Timothy right here. Here's my last verse. I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. And by the way, if you're just wondering, you know, what, what could I read in the New Testament just to really bring the church to life to me, read Titus First, Second Timothy, pastoral epistles. Listen to what Paul tells pastors, and, and you'll see it. But he said, I can't get to you, I'm hoping to come to you, but in case I'm delayed, in case I don't get there, Timothy, and he was pastoring the church of Ephesus, in case I don't get there, I, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God. The church of the living God, what is it? It's the pillar and support of the truth. need to know how to conduct yourself here. You say, well, I don't want to be a part of that. That means you just excluded yourself from all of that conduct. Yeah, that's a good portion of the New Testament I don't have to read. See what I'm saying? It's much more vital to my spiritual life. How does it give shape to my spiritual life? And what am, what am I really missing if I don't have it? What's not happening in my spiritual life? If I'm not, and I'm going to ahead and put it this far to you, in case you're wondering, well, I go to church, but you say I've never really be- maybe become a member. Why won't you? What does it say about your ecclesiology? What does it say about your Christology? This is, this is profoundly application. It's going to hurt. Next week's going to hurt. You better wear a hat. Next week, you better wear a hat and bring an ice pack. Wear a hat and bring an ice pack. Because as we unpack these, you're going to see them. Because look what Paul says. It's the pillar and support of truth, finally, by common confession. You've got to love that phrase right there. Not individual confession. Common confession. Great is the mystery of godliness, he who is revealed in the flesh, vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed in the world, and taken up in glory. That's our confession. We do that together. That's common. we got to be in that together. So, I know that this is, and, and listen, I want you to, uh, two things I realize as I, I just shut down here. Two things I realize. Oh, yeah, sure, every pastor is screaming, everybody become a member. You know, I'm sort of like, you know, yeah, I'm always in that position. If I tell you to give, it's, well, sure, he's asking. He needs it. And it always, you know, puts me in the middle. I'm trying to get out of the middle. I want you to see it in God's Word. I don't want you to see me in the middle. This is uh, all applies to me. I can't get out from under this either, whether I worked here or not. So that's the first thing I want you to see. And the second thing I want you to know is, Some of you in here have been seriously burned by a church, because not all churches are perfect. And I don't know how God puts up with it sometimes, or us. Because, I mean, we've been in existence 22 years. I could catalog the mistakes, alphabetical order A to Z. There'd be a file under all of them. And I know, and there's a party that says, I really like the gal- husband, but his wife, i not really that into her. I get it. I get it. Because that's how a lot of people relate to Christianity, even though they don't say it that way. So next week, why you got to put up with her? Why do you have to put up with her? I'm going to show you next week. I pray you'll be back here. I pray you'll be back here. For that, all right. Bow your heads. Would you, father thank you for your word? We just want to know what you want us to know. We want to be what you want us to be. We want to live the way you want us to live. We want to relate the way you want us to relate. God help us do that. And according to this passage, you are our authority and you are our source of existence. Show us, Father, what we need to know that we've been blinded, if we've been fuzzy as it relates to the church. And Father, the number one thing we center around is what Christ has done. And if there's one person here today who doesn't know you personally, I pray they would see that you have died on a cross and risen from the dead to reconcile them to God. We're grateful for that. In Jesus' name, amen.